We are, uh, as you know, if you've been here, working our way through the Psalms, uh, not fully, but uh, each summer we uh, take a break from our normal, uh, normally we go through a book of the Bible straight through, and then when summer rolls around, we take a break from that and we uh, take a look at various Psalms. Uh, and this morning, we are going to be continuing to look at Psalm 116. Uh, so if you have your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to open them up uh, as, as uh, I read, not only read it, but then also uh, take a look at different phrases in there and, and words. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you but would like to follow along, and not only with the reading but also the sermon, uh, if you look in the seat in front of you, the, the, the row in front of you, there should be a, a Bible underneath, uh, and you'll find uh, the text this morning on pages, uh, I think, 510 and 511. I'm going to be reading the whole thing. Uh, so Psalm 116, uh, we looked last week at the first nine verses. Uh, Psalm 116 is not in our Bible, but in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint. It was actually translated out of the Hebrew into Greek uh, before Christ was even born. So it's, an, it's an old translation done by uh, a group of 70 scholars. And um, in the Septuagint, they actually divide Psalm 116 into two, uh, verses 1 to 9 and then 10 through 19. And as I was working through it last week, I thought, ah, it's just so packed and so full that I decided to follow the Septuagint's lead and go ahead and uh, break it into two. Uh, so last week, we looked at the first nine verses. And, and just to recap a little bit, Psalm 119 is, uh, is a psalm of praise or thanksgiving. It is called a hallelujah psalm. There's a whole group of them uh, they're all right in this area, not all of them, but there's a group of them in this area. Look, for instance, at Psalm 113, you'll see right at the beginning, praise the Lord. Uh, Psalm 116 does not begin with praise the Lord, which is an English translation of the word hallelujah, the Hebrew word hallelujah, but you see it here at the end. Last week, we saw that Psalm 116 opens with I love the Lord and ends with praise the Lord. So it begins with love for the Lord, for what He's done, and it ends with praise and gratitude uh, towards the Lord for what He's done. So we're going to look at the second half more closely this week, verses 10 through 19, but I'll go ahead and read the whole thing just to give us the context. Psalm 116, I love the Lord because He has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed, 
Even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. In the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. So the psalmist begins in the first half by explaining how the Lord God not only heard his cries for help, because as we mentioned last week, Psalm 115 uh, talks about how the idols that uh, other nations make, uh, idols of wood and stone and and, and even precious metals uh, cannot hear. They have no ability to hear or save. And the psalmist is contrasting those idols with Yahweh, with the true God, the God of Israel, who not only did he, or could hear, not only had the ability to hear the psalmist's cry for mercy, but did. He inclined his ear to him. He listened to his cries and, in fact, saved him. The psalmist was in great despair. He was uh, soul and mind uh, just obviously racked with, with distress and anguish, he says. And it had something to do with facing down and staring down death. We don't know if his death was imminent. Uh, it could very well have been. But just, again, the fact, as we said last week, that, that his death was inevitable. Uh, we all face inevitable death, and, and those of us who begin sometimes to consider our death and the judgment that awaits if we're not in Christ can no doubt begin to uh, struggle with anxiety. And so he cried out, O Lord, deliver my soul. And he said that the Lord not only re rescued him so bountifully, so fully, that not only was his soul delivered from death, but his eyes were delivered from tears and his feet delivered from stumbling. And so he promises in verse 9 that he will walk before the Lord in the land of the living, which brings us to the second half and uh, the part that we're going to focus on this morning. Now, verse 10 is a somewhat difficult verse. Verse 10 says, I believed even when I spoke I am greatly afflicted. It's a difficult phrase, it's a difficult verse, not only, first of all, because it kind of comes out of nowhere. I mean, as I'm reading through this psalm, uh, for me, if I were writing it, uh, I think I would have gone straight from verse 9 to verse 12. In verse 9, he says, I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. And then in verse 12, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? Verses 10 and 11 kind of 
don't fit at first. You kind of wonder what's going on here. But secondly, it's difficult because it can be translated in various ways. Now, the I believed part and the I am greatly afflicted part, uh, that can't be translated various ways. That, that based, essentially, the psalmist is proclaiming that he had faith or he believed and he's saying that he cried out to God. He's reflecting back on his cries of anguish. He cried out to God, I am greatly afflicted. The difficulty is that middle part, which in our ESV is translated, I believed even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. The structure of the Hebrew is, is somewhat vague. And so the ESV, the, the, the English translators here of the ESV have gone with even when I spoke, which is possible. It's a possible translation. And if you go that way, then it kind of comes across as though the psalmist is saying he's kind of looking back on his, his cry of anguish, God, I am greatly afflicted, as perhaps something that was wrong, or maybe the way that he said it was wrong, or the way that he said it showed a lack of faith, that he's saying, look, what I said, even when I said something as seemingly horrible to God as, God, I am greatly afflicted, even then, I'm here to tell you, I still believed. I still had faith, even though it may not have looked like it. Now, again, that's a possible translation, and, and if we think about our own lives, uh, it rings true. How many of us in our own lives uh, have said things that were wrong, especially when we're under duress, when we're facing trials and, and temptations, or we're, we're distressed and, and greatly anguished, as the psalmist was? Sometimes we Perhaps oftentimes we have said things in those times, perhaps even said things to God that if somebody were to hear us saying, or perhaps when we reflect back on what we said, we would say, gosh, that was terrible. But I know that I still trust in God. I know that that was said in faith, as bad as it was. In fact, if we lost our faith every time we said something wrong, none of us would have faith. And we've all said that many wrong things. That being said, I tend to favor another way of translating this, and it's the way the NIV has translated it, which is this. The NIV says, I believed, therefore I said, I am greatly afflicted. See, in other words, what the psalmist is reflecting back on, I think, is not reflecting back on him crying out to God, saying, God, I am in anguish. He's not saying that appeared or felt or may have seen like it lacked faith. He's not saying that was wrong for me to do, but nonetheless, I kept my faith. He is saying that crying out to God, God, I am in anguish here, was a sign of his faith. It was evidence of great faith. You see, one of the things that, that we can do, even as Christians, and I'm guilty of this maybe more than anyone else in this room, some of you can probably relate to me. 
But when I'm facing hardship and trial of whatever kind, sometimes if it's just the trials of life, daily life, it doesn't even have to be great hardship, oftentimes the last thing I do is pray. Oftentimes I face my trials by running it over in my mind or, or maybe talking to Michelle or, or maybe even talking to a, a friend of mine, uh, somebody else outside of my family. I, I, I tend to talk a lot about it, maybe even journal about it. And then after doing all of that, sometimes I, I catch myself and say, I haven't even prayed about this. I've been doing all of this other stuff, but I haven't gone to my father about it. But you see, when, when we are facing trials in life and we go to God with our cries of anguish, then we're demonstrating that we take God seriously. We're demonstrating that when we say we believe that God is actually sovereign, like we did earlier today. What, what did we do? We, we confessed our faith earlier. God freely and unchangeably ordains whatsoever comes to pass. He sustains, directs, and governs all creatures, events, and things. This includes everything from the greatest to the least. Informed by his infallible foreknowledge and free and unchangeable purposes, God exercises his completely wise and holy oversight, and this oversight is not by a bare permission only, but God does whatever he purposes to his own holy ends. We say that. We confess that. When we face a hardship or a trial in this life, and then we turn to God, and we say, God, I'm struggling here, we're demonstrating that we truly believe this. We're saying, God, I know you're sovereign over this. I don't know why you have purposed this. I know you've purposed this for your own holy and wise ends, but I'm struggling with it. Interestingly, the other reason that I take it this way, I believed and therefore I said, is because that's actually the way that Paul takes it. Uh, Paul in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians is, is we, well, we had it in our call to worship, this exact section, and 2 Corinthians is Paul's letter uh, of where he expresses a lot of his personal anguish and hardships, things that have happened in his life and in his ministry. And Paul, when he quotes from this psalm, when he quotes this section, he actually uses that Greek translation that I told you about, the Septuagint's translation of it. And the Septuagint's translation, those Hebrew scholars translated it that way. I believed, therefore, I spoke. Paul says, we are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and therefore I spoke. We also believe and so we speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also and bring us into his presence. So don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. So Paul goes on. Dale Ralph Davis, a uh, Old Testament scholar, he says, faith looks not to circumstances, but to God. Now, not everything, I think, that the psalmist said back then when he was struggling 
was good. The expression, God, I am struggling here, was good. I think the second phrase here, all men are liars, was not. I think this is what he's saying. Because if you look at verse 11, he says, I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. Now, that phrase, I said in my alarm, it can also be translated, I said in haste, or I said rashly. He's looking back on the things he said when he was facing trials. And if you've lived long enough and faced enough trials, in fact, if you just use social media, you've probably uh, looked back on many things you've said rashly or in haste that you wish you hadn't said. How many times when we're facing trials, when we're facing um, hardship, and we're worried about it or we're anxious about it, can we say things that are rash? Now, there is a sense, and this is why I'm not completely sold on the fact that he thinks this is wrong, there is a sense that Scripture talks about in which, compared to God, we are all liars. We all have lied at some point or another. We all have the capacity to lie. Uh, each one of us, when faced with uh, either telling the truth and getting in big trouble or lying and getting out of trouble, have that temptation in front of us and can certainly fall to that temptation, unlike God, who cannot lie. Uh, one of the things that, uh, that you know, you... you you think, I think, when you first kind of come to faith is that God can do anything. Well, that's simply not true, biblically speaking. There are lots of things God cannot do. One of them is lie. God cannot lie. He cannot sin. Uh, God cannot break his promises. It, it is impossible for him to do those things because it is not in his character to do. And so, in one sense, yes, Paul says in Romans 3, 4, let God be true, though everyone else were a liar. However, I don't think the psalmist is looking back favorably on this, again, on this statement. I don't think he's thinking of it in that way. I mean, all humans can lie, but in fact, we can also tell the truth. Uh, in fact, it's one of the Ten Commandments. We are commanded to tell the truth. When we have the option of either lying or telling the truth, God tells us to tell the truth. And so, I think he's looking back on something he said that he wishes he didn't. What about you? Are there things that you say or have said in haste that you wish you hadn't? Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon says this, speaking in haste is generally followed by a bitter repentance. It is much better to be quiet when our spirit is disturbed and hasty, for it is so much easier to say than to unsay. We may repent of our words, but we cannot so recall them as to undo the mischief they have done. I remember uh, one of my children, when uh, he was little, and we would uh, punish him, by sending him to bed, either, you know, especially if it was during the day and everyone else was up playing uh, and he could hear everyone still up. But even sometimes, even just putting him to bed, if he thought his bedtime was too early than it should have been, uh, he would say, uh, and, and, and my whole family knows this exact phrase, those of us who were old enough to, to remember this, 
uh, at the time, uh, he would say, I don't, he would look us right in the eye and say, I don't love you or like you or want you, and I want you to leave forever and never come back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, dang. Uh, <laughs> in fact, I had a friend uh, one time, he's looking kind of dejected, and I said, what's wrong, man? And he said, I can't believe my daughter this, yesterday or whatever told me, Dad, I don't love you. I said, is that all she said? <laughs> I shared with him what my son said, and he said, wow, that is way worse. <laughs> you see, we, times of distress can lead to things said in faith, but it can also lead to things said in haste, things we regret. And the psalmist is reflecting on both of those things, uh, recognizing this jumbled mess that we are, that during times of trial, we can say things that are good and say things that are bad should give us such a sense of overwhelming gratitude that the Lord God has saved us despite how messy we are. And that's exactly where the psalmist goes. After he talks about what it is that he said in verse 12, he asks himself, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? Now that the psalmist has reflected on everything that the Lord God has done for him in, in verses 1 through 9, and reflected on how unworthy he is in verses 10 and 11, he asks the question here, after he's reflected on the grace that he's received, how can I repay him? How can I repay God for all he's done for me? And as I read that question this week, I thought that's actually a good question. That's a good question uh, to ask ourselves because I think when we ask ourselves that question, it means that we have in some sense truly grasped the greatness of our salvation. Have you ever been, Christian, so overwhelmed by God's grace that you have stopped in your tracks and asked yourself, how can I repay God? I admit to you, just as I admitted earlier that I so often fail to pray, I so often fail to think about the greatness of my salvation. Uh, I get up and go about my day. And so often get through day after day and week after week without truly reflecting on what I owed God and what he gave to me. And the psalmist is thinking about that. I think far too many times those of us who have received such great salvation receive it and then go about our day. Think back to the scripture that was read earlier. I think it's one of the saddest Scriptures in the whole Bible. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance. Lepers had a death sentence on them, incurable. And in fact, not only did it lead to death, but it led to a life outside of normal living. They were confined to colonies. Uh, they had to proclaim to everyone else in society that they were unclean so that everyone would stay away. They, from a distance, 
lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he didn't ignore them. He didn't walk away like everyone else. When he saw them, he said to them, go, show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed fully. One of them, one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back. Praising God with a loud voice, he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? What a sad statement. Nine of them went on their way and decided to go live their lives without going back and thanking the one who had healed them. Jesus says, was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Rise and go your way, your faith has made you well. The psalmist asks the same thing. He says, what can I do to pay God back? And his answer is, I think, amazing. Verse 13. His answer is, I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. See, when when we ask, what can we do to repay God, if we ask that, Hopefully, sometimes we do. And we really think about it, we realize pretty quickly that there's really nothing we can do to pay him back. What can we give to the God who has everything? When we start to think, oh, I know what I'll give him that he needs, we run into verses like this, Job 41.11, who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever under the whole heaven is mine. Acts 17, 24 and 25, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. It's not only that God doesn't need anything from us, everything that we have is from him. There's nothing that we have that didn't come from him. He is the source of everything we have. So in one sense, even if we do give something back to him, it's like giving money back to a guy that gave you money. (laughs) You're giving it back to him. God doesn't need anything from us. So on the one hand, there is nothing that we can give him that he needs. It was the same thing with those lepers. What did Jesus need from them? Jesus was God in the flesh. As Satan said when he tempted him in the wilderness and as we saw, when Jesus needed food, all he had to do was create it. He made uh, wine out of water and he fed uh, 5,000 people from a smattering of food. So really, these lepers had nothing they could give him, but they could do something. They couldn't give him something that he needed, but the one thing that they could do is exactly what the one leper did. When he saw that he was healed, he turned back and he praised God. 
and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. So it's pretty amazing that when the psalmist says, what can I do to pay God back, the answer that he gives is, I will lift, lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. That's his answer. One Old Testament scholar says this, the New Testament itself could hardly give a better glimpse than this of heaven's grace and man's response. In other words, when the psalmist asks, what can I do for him, his answer is, I know what I can do for him. I can look again at what he's done for me. That's what I can do for him. The best gift, Christian, that we can give to God, the best gift and the first gift that we can give to God, and the gift that we should give back to him every day is to lift up and hold again the cup of salvation that he's given to us. See, some, some believe that when the, when the psalmist is talking about the cup of salvation, they think he's referring here to the drink offering that we read about in the law of Moses. But I don't think he's referring to that because the drink offering was a cup of offering given to the Lord, whereas he's not saying that. He's not saying, I know what I'll give back to him. I'll give him something, an offering to him. He's saying the thing that I will give back to him is to reflect again on his offering to me, on what he's done for me. Notice as well that the second part of this is that he's not only going to lift up the cup of salvation, but he's going to call on the name of the Lord. He's already talked about calling on the name of the Lord. But I think this is in a different way. If you look at verse 4, he said, I called on the name of the Lord. The first time he called on the name of the Lord, it was in order to be saved. That's the first time we ever call on the name of the Lord as Christians. Once the Holy Spirit changes us and we are regenerated and we realize how sinful we are and we call on the name of the Lord, it's Lord, save me. Lord, I can't save myself. I'm a, I'm a sinner. Please save me. But notice here the second and third time, if we look at verses 13 and then a little way down in verse 17, when he calls on the name of the Lord now, it's because he has been saved. The first time, it was for salvation that he called on the name of the Lord, but the second and subsequent times, it is because of salvation. The first time, it's to receive it, and all the other times it is to remember it. In verse 2, he says, I, I'm going to call on him as long as I live. That's basically the Christian life. The Christian life begins with a calling on God for salvation, and then once we've received it, the Christian life is a constant reminder of the salvation we've been given and a calling on God to praise him for what he's done for us. Verse 14, and I'm going to couple that with verses 16 through 19 because they all kind of fit together. We see here that he says, I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. 
I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people in the courts of the house of the Lord in your midst, O Jerusalem. I think when we look at these verses here, we see at least two things. I think the first thing we see as, uh, is this, that those who have been freed from slavery by the Lord are called into service for the Lord. Those who have been freed from slavery by the Lord are called into service for the Lord. Notice how many times he stresses that he is now the Lord's servant. He stresses, I am the Lord's servant. And yet, interestingly, he says, I am the servant or slave of the Lord, where at the same time he's saying, the Lord God loosed my bonds. Notice that. You have loosed my bonds. I am your servant. I am your servant. I am your bond servant. That kind of thing. That's somewhat surprising language because when we think of a servant or a slave, we think of someone who's put in chains, someone who's put in bonds, and yet he's saying, Lord, you have loosed me from my bonds, and I am your servant. What's he talking about? Well, remember, this psalm is not only a hallelujah psalm, but it's part of what's called the Egyptian Hallel. I mentioned this last week. The Egyptian Hallel is a, is a set of psalms Psalm 113 through 118, that were sung during the Passover every year. They were sung and they focused on specifically the Israelites being released from slavery in Egypt. That's that's when this would have been sung. In fact, Psalm 116 was sung after the meal. So when we think of Israel being removed or released from slavery in Egypt, their bonds were, in that sense, released. They were no longer enslaved to the Egyptians. That being said, if we read the Exodus, we see that they were freed from slavery not to do whatever they wanted. God didn't say to Pharaoh through Moses, let my people go that they may do whatever they please. The Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. In other words, when they were released from bondage to Pharaoh, they were released in order that they might become servants to the Lord. And that's what the New Testament says when When it refers to Christians, in fact, Paul refers to himself over and over again as a slave of Christ, a bondservant of Christ. Christians are called slaves of Christ, which means that like the Israelites, we have been set free from our bondage to sin so that we are now free to serve God, to serve our Savior. Paul says, thanks be to God, you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart. Having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, 
which is your spiritual worship. It's interesting that uh, our culture uh, tends, and, 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 and it's not just our culture, I mean, this has been going on, and Paul even talks about it in Romans 1, I mean, it's been going on since, since the fall, really, that uh, human beings think that when we get rid of God's law, uh, when we suppress the truth and unrighteousness, we are now free. We're free to do whatever we want. We're free to live however we want. And the Bible says, in actuality, the more we go down that road, the more in bondage we are. And that freedom is actually doing what God calls us to do. When we are in heaven, for the first time, we will be totally free. Because for the first time, we will not even have the ability to sin. We will only and ever do exactly what God calls us to do. And that's one of the things that we see here in this passage. That he is saying, I, I am your servant, Lord. You've freed me from my bonds, and so I will serve you. But the second thing we see is not only that uh, when God frees us, we are freed from slavery to service to him, but God gives us a spiritual family to help us do that. Those who have been brought into a relationship with God are also brought into a relationship with God's people. Notice where the psalmist says he's going to do these things. He says he's going to pay his vows to the Lord in the presence of God's people, in the courts of the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. Just like when the psalmist, when he first called upon the name of the Lord, he did so to receive salvation. And then later when he called on the name of the Lord, it was to reflect or remember his salvation. So what we see in this passage is the first verses here describe a very private interaction between the psalmist and God. That he was the one suffering distress, that he was the one that needed salvation, and that he was the one that cried out to God, Lord, save me. Our salvation with God is personal. Our salvation with God is private in the sense that we go to God on our own once we have been renewed by the Holy Spirit to ask God to save us. But though our salvation is personal, though our relationship with God is personal, it is never private. God does not call Christians into a relationship with Him that doesn't also include a relationship with, with the rest of God's people. Over and over again, you see the pattern in the, in the New Testament where God's people come to faith in Him, each individually, and are then added to the church. God brings us into salvation, into a community of believers, and together we praise the Lord. Where is the primary place? If you think about it, we are called to take up the cup of salvation and to look at it again and remember what God has done for us. We are called to call upon the name of the Lord, to offer up praise to the Lord. Where is the primary place that we're going to do that? I can tell you, for me, it's generally not during the week. Oftentimes during the week, I'm distracted by other things. 
But when I gather here, when I gather in the presence of the rest of the people of God, then together we do all of these things. See, one of the most important reasons, Christian, for you to be here for worship on Sunday mornings is to help encourage your fellow believers. Because we all come here after a week of struggling to do these things. And that's one of the reasons why I love that this place is lit up and you can see everybody. Sometimes I go to other churches and it's darkened like a theater. And when it's darkened like that, I can't see fellow believers confessing faith in Christ. I can't look around and see my brothers and sisters singing to the Lord and praising God. I love looking around. I I often don't have a chance to do that because I'm sitting in the front row. But when I get the chance, I love to see you guys joining with me when I'm up here and we're confessing our faith together and I see that we're all joining together and professing our faith. We need one another. We need one another because even though we have been freed from the fear of death, we are inevitably still going to die. That's, I've said this before, that's uh, what one of my professors, Carl Truman, told me is, is ultimately a pastor's job. That if you really boil down a pastor's job, our job is to prepare people for death. That's verse 15. Verse 15, it seems like an outlier in a sense. It, it kind of comes out of nowhere. It d- didn't really seem to fit. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. I thought it was kind of, again, I wrestled with that. How does this fit in? But then it's really only kind of an outlier unless we remember where the psalmist began. Because the psalmist began being terrified of death. Go back. I mean, he was scared to death of death. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Again, whether it was uh, imminent or not, it was inevitable, and he feared it. When faced with the inevitability of his own death, he became terrified. Now, now, how is he facing death? Notice, death is still inevitable. Not that saints escape death. But what once terrified him now is seen in the light of the salvation that he has received from God. Precious in the sight of God is the death of his saints. You know, a lot of the early church fathers read this and they really focused on martyrs because there were a lot of martyrs. And Jeff prayed for Christians in North Korea today. There are martyrs all over the world today. Uh, I, I read about it in, in the voice of the martyrs, uh, Christians that are being killed in, uh, all over the world in Nigeria. A passage like this is going to be one that those Christians that are facing imminent death are going to cling on to. Because they don't have any promise of tomorrow. The, the thing is, Christian, neither do we. I mean, we might not be facing imminent martyrdom, but you and I could go to sleep tonight and not wake up tomorrow. What is it like for a Christian to face death? I think back to the first martyr, Stephen. One of the things that always touches me is that when Stephen is being stoned, 
And you can just imagine the pain of that. Imagine being stoned to death. But as he's being stoned to death, uh, he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazes into heaven and he sees the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he says, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. You know, all throughout the New Testament, we are told that when Jesus ascended into heaven, he was seated at the right hand of the Father. So it's amazing to me that the first martyr, as he's dying, sees Jesus standing at the right hand. I almost wonder if, if Jesus is standing in honor of this martyr who gave his life for him. The saint, the saint who is dying, does not have to face death with trembling fear. Because the Apostle Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present immediately with the Lord. Jesus said, I am the resurrection of the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Of course he wasn't saying we're not going to die physically, but he means that today you will be with me in paradise. Spurgeon, I like, I'm going to quote him again, I like the way he says this, the Lord values the lives of his saints. They shall not die prematurely. They shall be immortal until their work here is done. I like how he said, they, the saints will be immortal until God calls them home. And when their time shall come to die, he says, their death shall be precious. The deathbeds of saints are very precious to the church, for she often learns much from them. They are very precious to all believers who delight to treasure up the last words of the departed Christian. But they are most of all precious to the Lord who view the triumphant deaths of his gracious ones with sacred delight. If we have walked before him in the land of the living, we need not fear to die before him when our hour of departure is at hand. You know, it is interesting, I'll close with this, that this psalm is part of the Egyptian Hallel because it means that this psalm was sung by Jesus on his last night on earth. This psalm was sung by Jesus the night before his death. And on that night, Jesus rehearsed so many of the things in this psalm. On that very night, Jesus, like the psalmist, lifted up literally the cup of salvation. He held it up before his followers. And he, he told his disciples, all of whom were about to abandon him in his hour of greatest need, he said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant of my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. On that night, Jesus, like this psalmist, said, my heart is very sorrowful. I am in great anguish and distress, even to the point of death. On that night, Jesus, like this psalmist, he went to his father with his cries of anguish. Jesus took seriously his faith. He said that his father was in control, and he demonstrated that his father was in control. He went to his father, and he said, Lord, my father, if it be possible, please remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but yours. And yet, as Jesus hung on the cross the next day, and he cried out, 
Unlike the psalmist, his father did not incline his ear to him. Unlike the psalmist, he did not reach down and save him. Unlike the psalmist, the father turned away. And he turned away because he did not answer Jesus' prayer, yes, I will remove the cup from you. Why is the psalmist or we given the cup of salvation? Why are we able to lift that up day after day and look at it and say, look at what our Lord has done for us? It's because he drank the cup of wrath. We get what he didn't get, and he got what we don't get. Jesus drank the cup of wrath, and he drank it to the dregs. And when he did, and when he rose, the snares of death and the pangs of the grave were defeated. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Christian, how do we conclude today? I think we conclude all of this the way the psalmist does. The psalmist concludes the way we will. Praise the Lord. Let's, let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for this salvation. We're so thankful, Father, for what you have done for us. We're so grateful for what our Lord did for us, that he, in fact, drank the cup of wrath so that we would never have to. Father, we pray that you would help us by your Spirit to hold aloft, often, daily, the cup of salvation, and that you would help us by your Spirit serve you as we ought. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.